Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. In May of 1863, Ulysses S. Grant outmaneuvered his rebel opponents and reached the outskirts of Vicksburg after seeking it for many months. From May 17th to May 22nd, he organized and launched multiple assaults on the town. They failed with significant Union losses and then slipped into the dustbin of history, rarely written about or discussed since. But what if those assaults had succeeded? We'll ask that question and others of Timothy B. Smith, author of The Union Assaults at Vicksburg, Grant Attacks Pemberton, May 17 through 22, 1863, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the Civil War Talk Radio pandemic headquarters on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina. It is the first Wednesday of December 2020. Uh, I am not at East Carolina University tonight, have not been there for some months now, and I'm never on the show speaking for East Carolina University, just for myself. My guest likewise will speak only for himself tonight, as we always do here. Well, we are in the final month of 2020, a year uh, forgettable for many reasons. Last weekend, I put up lights around the house, actually, in some cases, just turned on lights that we'd left up uh, from the year before, saves a lot of time. In the past, I have sort of thought it kind of been snobby about people who put up their holiday lights uh, even before Thanksgiving is over, 
But this year we had ours up early. Our neighbors have theirs up early. I think everyone, uh, many people are eager to get ahead to the holidays and get this year over with. It has been a tough year for uh, many of us, uh, certainly those who teach. My wife, who has been teaching in person at a K-12 school, is in fear every day. It's been a tough year on small businesses, which leads me to uh, put in the occasional plug for small businesses. Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours, for example. Uh, many of you I've had the pleasure of traveling with on tours organized by that company, and they couldn't do any tours this past year. Uh, I was on a conference call with them a few weeks ago, and they are hoping the vaccine will be in effect and be able to launch tours in 2021, uh, maybe even do the Civil War tours as early as spring 2021. So keep an eye on their website if you want to join. Uh, another small business to say thanks to is Freeland Spirits uh, of Oregon. Uh, listener Mike Goodner was kind enough to send me a sample of their wares and also a single malt whiskey that has his name on the bottle as uh, the Goodner 2020 blend. So there are certainly perks in hosting this show to get such a, a generous gift and to support a small distillery in the Northwest. And uh, uh, Good luck to those businesses. On the other hand, uh, GTS Express Lube in Greenville gets a down vote from me. If you're uh, in need of an oil change while visiting East Carolina University, don't go to the branch on uh, Greenville Boulevard. I, my daughter took her car there not too many months ago, and they left the cap off so that oil splashed everywhere. It smelled like the car was on fire for days, even after we thoroughly cleaned it ourselves. And then I, for some unaccountable reason, took my car there to get it inspected and, and thoughtlessly said, go ahead and change the oil. This time they left the splash guard off, which caused it to rattle as if the engine was about to explode. I turned around and took the car to my regular dealer for routine maintenance. They took one look and said, somebody changed your oil, and they, they replaced the splash guard at no cost. Uh, but that means uh, a plus vote to Barbara Hendrick Honda of Greenville, who are not paying me to say that. And uh, I'm sure the GTS Express Lube in your town, if you have one, is just fine, but I cannot recommend the one here in Greenville. I can recommend here in Greenville the ECU football team, uh, which won their last game of the season in outstanding fashion. While my alma mater up in Ann Arbor struggles, so we'll say no more about that. The here on campus, or down the road on campus, I should say, because I'm not in the Brewster building tonight, uh, we've finished the fall semester. Exams are done. We finished early because we started in early August. Skipped fall break. We're going to skip spring break, try to limit student travel, and have just one single giant winter break. So I'm using this time not just to talk with you, uh, but also to prepare a, a military history course for the spring that I'll be teaching uh, and haven't taught online, haven't taught it at all, much less online before. So this past week I've been reading a book on uh, designing college courses, which I've never done before. Most professors that you've had, or if you're a professor, you know this to be the case, don't get much instruction in teaching. You just watch it being done for half your life, and then you're 
told, go and do thou likewise. But that doesn't really work in these new circumstances, having to teach online, having to teach in new, new uh, conditions. So I've been reading this book, and I've been reassured to find that working through the, the educationese, the gibberish, the authentic learning experiences type language, I find much of what I've been doing for 17 years here is pretty much what they're recommending. But I've been doing it in the classroom and have to find a way to do it online, and this book is actually being quite helpful. So uh, there is some good to come out of this uh, that I hope, hopefully can put together a more effective online course than would otherwise be the case. In terms of content, uh, the course will follow something that's near and dear to my heart and yours also, if you're listening to the show, and that is evidence. Uh, the, the theme of the course is going to be use of historical evidence. It's what you and I do when we pick up a new Civil War book, go to the back to start, look at the notes, look at the bibliography. If there isn't one, book goes back on the shelf. Why waste time reading something that the author is not willing to uh, reveal their sources for, or perhaps doesn't have any decent sources? And this strikes me as particularly relevant because... Uh, as a society, we've entered this phase where there are some people, for and not naming any names, but there are some people for whom partisanship appears to matter more than evidence, and in place of critical evaluation and thoughtful skepticism, there's just cynical rejection of everything the other side says, and blind faith in everything one's own side says. And that's just not how history gets done. We, we look at the evidence. If it contradicts our cherished beliefs, we change our cherished beliefs and follow the evidence wherever it leads. And I'm, I'm really concerned about a rising generation of students uh, learning to understand the world that way, follow the evidence and not follow what your leader says regardless of where it takes you. Uh, so... As a historian, I can't tell people who to vote for. That's not my job. I don't want to do that. But I can certainly tell my students what they need to do to write a passable history paper, and that is cite your sources. Uh, go to primary sources. Do it the right way. Enough lecturing. Uh, the students will get a bundle of that starting in January. What you will get... Uh, Starting next week is a conversation with Kenneth No, author of The Howling Storm, Weather, Climate, and the American Civil War. And then that long winter break will begin. But we'll be back on January 13th, 2021 with Stephen Barry. Uh, he is a innovative scholar. He's been on the show before. Uh, you can see his private voices project at altchive.org. We'll talk with him about non-print and digital Civil War scholarship. And in the meantime, you can go online also to www.impedimentsofwar. You'll see there where who's been on the show, who's going to be on the show. Mark Gaffney keeps that up to date. You can click on the links to buy the books you hear about on the show. You can contribute to the show, the Civil War Book and Other Things Fund is wrapping up the year. It is, as always, not tax deductible. It is not something you can get any credit for, but you can feel good about helping the show go forward 
are helping me when I finish the gifts from other listeners, uh, start on some, some new beverage. Uh, so your, your contributions there are always welcome. Tonight we are talking with Timothy B. Smith. He is a former park ranger, U.S. Park Service ranger at Shiloh. Uh, has for many years now been a professor of history at the University of Tennessee at Martin. Uh, we welcome him back to the show. It was 14 years ago. Hard to imagine uh, Tim was last here. Uh, but I'm sure neither of us has changed the least bit. Uh, Tim, are you there? Yes. Good evening. Well, good evening to you. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Thank you. It, it's been a, a tough year for us all. I know you were scheduled to be on the show in May, and you've had some challenging times to go through with your family. My condolences. Uh, but I certainly appreciate you rescheduling and, and coming back here. I hope hope uh, we can look forward to a better 2021. Yes, definitely. I appreciate your uh, flexibility back in in May. Uh, my father passed away just that week, and I appreciate uh, appreciate you allowing me to cancel on you right at the last minute. Well, that, that's obviously family comes first for all of us, and and again, my condolences. It's a tough thing we all go through. Uh, well, I was just saying before you came on about the importance of evidence for historians and and how. I'm sure you treat your students the same way, that you, you require that they show their sources and, and not just use Wikipedia or unsourced <laughs> secondary sources. Uh, but let, let me ask about this book, uh, The Union Assaults at Vicksburg, Grant Attacks Pemberton, May 17 to 22, 1863. Uh, where, where does the research come for that? For, for where, where did you start digging into that project? Well, um, of course, uh, any military history book from the Civil War is going to start with the official records, which uh, is just a treasure trove of reports and correspondence and documents and orders of battle and all that. And normally when I write a book like this, I start with the official records and write kind of the basic story, um, each chapter that I want to tell, um, and then I go to the second major um, grouping of of, uh, of sources, and that's the manuscript material. Uh, I, I tend to deal less with uh, articles and biographies because I mean everybody's read that and all the anecdotal material and and so on uh, in there. So uh, I go to the manuscript material and start feeding in that. Um, uh, a lot of that, of course, is official uh, in nature as well, but most of it is letters and diaries that really gives a, a kind of a human flavor to um, to the, the boring old stuffy official correspondence and, and so on. And so really those are the two major areas. And then I uh, obviously feed in the, um, the published primary sources, and, and obviously the secondary sources. You can't write an academic book without dealing with the literature and, and so on, so uh, I utilize all that as well. But uh, the vast majority of it will either come from the official records or the uh, just a treasure trove of manuscript material all over the nation. You say all over the nation. One of the places that 
I found extremely helpful when, when writing about Civil War battles is the battlefield itself, not just the physical battlefield, but the the uh, Park Service Visitor Center. Many of them have uh, their own files, historical files oh, that well, they keep. Of, uh, I, I assume Vicksburg has that. They do. Um, and I spent several research trips down there um, not only going through the regimental files, and uh, they have a whole series called Letters, Journey, Journals, and um, Diaries, I believe, which is, is just full of, of everything you can imagine. Uh, a lot of the park files um, will actually contain uh, the letters and diaries and so on, contemporary, you know, summer 1863 stuff, but it'll also include a lot of the veterans' Uh, accounts from later on. Of course, you have to watch some of that. Um, it's much <laughs> like mem- memoirs and reminiscences and, and so on. You have to you have to judge it by everything else. But um, but a lot of the veterans, the, the parks, the original park commission would write to the veterans or have the veterans write into them. You know, where were you? Where was your camp? What what did you do? What was your activity? And so on. And of course. Uh, some would not agree with others, and they would get into arguments with each other about we were here, no, we were over here, no, we were on this region, and so on. But um, just uh, just a whole lot of really good, really good information there. Um, and then I would spend a lot of time out on the battlefield itself, tramping through the uh, the ravines and and so on that uh, the Union forces assaulted through. Uh, if you go, I don't know if you've been to Vicksburg, I assume you have, Jerry. But uh, if you go around the tour route, you get a little flavor of the rugged terrain, but uh, the, the tour route is, is basically intended to get you around the park without getting you lost or coming down <laughs> the or something. Um, and you really have to get off into the woods and, and, um, and do some exploring to uh, to really get the feel of, of where they were. And, and so I remember when I was down there in February um, of whatever year I was doing this research, and I took my daughter with me. She was probably... Uh, 12 or so, 11 or 12 men. And even in February, I think we saw either two or three snakes. Uh, even even out in the, <laughs> the middle of the woods in February, you know. And, well, I, I'll say I saw several snakes. I never brought them to her attention. I don't think she ever knew they were they were even there. But um, it's kind of, kind of interesting research. There, there's <laughs> the hazards of Civil War research. Yeah. Uh, Vicksburg is just an amazing battlefield, and especially... Uh, for those of us who've been to Antietam and Gettysburg, and you see Cemetery Ridge, and it, you know, it's a ridge in the sense it's higher than the road, ten feet lower. But then you got to Vicksburg, and man, those are hills. That's really, yeah, really different. Exactly. Yeah. We're going to take a short break and come back talk about what happened at the Union assaults at Vicksburg. That's the name of the book, subtitled "Grant Attacks Pemberton, May 17 to 22, 1863." The author is our guest tonight, Timothy B. Smith. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at VoiceAmericaTRN. 
we got a high-energy, all-access sports show for you. It's Outside the Huddle, starring Lemond Williams. Each week, join Lemond as he takes callers, discusses the week's top stories in the world of sports, and sits down with active and former players to discuss their transition from sports to business. Outside the Huddle is a great resource for players making career transitions both on and off the field. Tune in Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, and 5 Pacific for Outside the Huddle on the Voice America Sports Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Timothy B. Smith, author of the Union Assaults at Vicksburg, Grant Attacks Pemberton, May 17 to 22, 1863. That, that's a pretty specific title, Tim. It, it, it focuses just on this five-day span within the, the lengthy siege of Vicksburg. Uh, so I guess one question someone who, who's not you know, deeply versed in the campaign would ask is, why, why do we need to know about this? What it didn't work. We, there's no spoiler in saying he didn't capture Vicksburg in May. Uh, so why learn about Grant's assaults? What was there anything important here? Well, yeah, obviously to um, <laughs> those soldiers who were killed or wounded there, it was very important. Um, well, it's true. the largest battle, actually, um, in terms of numbers engaged in the Vicksburg campaign. Um, and it's a, it's an attempt for, uh, you know, a, a quick victory, uh, that really has larger strategic, uh, implications. And I deal with this a little bit in the, um, in kind of the preface and the, the afterward, or the prologue and epilogue. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, a lot of the reason, not the whole reason, but a lot of the reason that Lee invades Pennsylvania, of course, and leading to the Gettysburg campaign is because Jefferson Davis wanted to send Lee, or at least part of his uh, army, to Vicksburg, or maybe even to, to, to Tennessee would be a little more uh, palatable, um, to take pressure off of Vicksburg. And so if Grant, and you know, that campaign doesn't start until early June, um, and Lee doesn't move out, I don't believe, until a little later. I'm not an expert on Gettysburg. But, you know, if Grant had taken uh, Vicksburg in May, in these assaults, um, there wouldn't have been any reason to take pressure off of Vicksburg. And, you know, it's, it's a uh, hypothetical, but it makes you wonder whether the Vicksburg or the Gettysburg campaign would have even taken place. Um, so there are, there are potential large, uh, strategic, um, implications to, um, 
to this, and it's a uh, it's a, it's obviously part of a larger campaign. Um, you really break Vicksburg down into into uh, a couple of different um, needs or desires or or goals. One that takes Grant five or six or seven months is just to get to a position that he can take Vicksburg, uh, and that's gaining that that high ground east of. Uh, east of Vicksburg between Jackson and, and Vicksburg, and he tries that through the Mississippi Central Campaign uh, and all those bio campaigns, the, the Yazoo Pass and Steele's bio and, and so on. So it takes him a while just to even get to Vicksburg. And then, of course, he has to take Vicksburg, which is the second goal, uh, and he tries it quick-like in, in these assaults. That doesn't work. And then, of course, he lays siege and ultimately ultimately gains the uh, – Gains the victory, so it's it's part. If you're going to understand the larger Vicksburg campaign, you have to understand this this integral part of it. Uh, and actually, in terms of, of why I book on this, um, this is is actually part of a larger uh, series that I'm doing. I just happened to start right in the middle, and there's a whole story behind that. If you want to hear it, I can I can tell you. But um, it's probably going to turn out to be a five volume Vicksburg campaign study, um, and being, you know, an integral part of it, as I said, uh, deserves its uh, its own book. So, you know, last year, I, I was going to ask this, and, and your question changes the context a little, or your comment does. Um, Donald Miller came out with his book on the Vicksburg campaign uh, sometime around the end of, of 2019, I think. And mm-hmm. it, obviously you, you were aware of that, you were working on this, I know it's always a challenge when a scholar is working on something and someone else comes out with a similar thing. And I'm not asking you to badmouth another scholar's work, but rather, uh, you know, how, how does yours differ? And, and you've just given one answer. This is part of a much bigger work. Uh, are, well, are there other differences? Well, mainly in, in depth of coverage um, mm-hmm. and in terms of, of Really, the nitty-gritty tactical history. This is this is obviously Kansas uh, Modern War Study Series. Um, this is aimed at those people who, you know, love to walk the ground and want to know where this regiment went and, and so on. And so, there's a whole lot of that. There's a lot of human interest stuff as well, politics, um, civilian type stuff. I deal with the civilians during the uh, during the assaults and so on. So, there's a little bit for. Uh, for everyone, but in in terms of what makes this different, um, most of the the volumes, even Ed Barber's, you know, huge three volume set, um, dealt with with the assaults just as part of a of a larger volume, you know, that, that contained a lot of other stuff. So this is the first um, dedicated volume to uh, really the the largest battle in terms of numbers engaged in the Vicksburg campaign. And it, as you pointed, it is it is a significant battle in terms of casualties. It's comparable to First Bull Run, uh, which, which I find an interesting thing that if you look at the battles in the midst of campaigns like this assault as part of Vicksburg, or take something at, at, at like New Market Heights in Virginia in 1864, that has more casualties than Bull Run or a similar amount. But everybody. Our students have all heard of Bull Run. Uh, they haven't heard of New Market Heights. They haven't heard of Grant's attack uh, in May at Vicksburg, even though the scale is the same. So by this time in the war, losing 4,000 
uh, 5,000 casualties in one battle is no longer the huge deal that it was in 1861, but it's still a big deal. And as you pointed out, it's a huge—it's everything to those who are involved. Uh, right. So exactly. this is a significant the folks battle. Folks back home that get the letters. Yeah. Sure. Now, the there are a lot of things in this book that I found really interesting that just jumped out. Things I had never read in other Vicksburg books, and I'm not. Uh, an expert on it. And I'll admit I have not read Ed Barris's three volumes. Uh, it's on the list, but haven't done so. One thing that struck me right from the first chapter is how tiny the town of Vicksburg is. Uh, <laughs> yeah. it, you know, we think of it as one of these big places that determines the outcome of the war. There's what, fewer than 5,000 people living there? Oh, yeah, I think like um, 4,000, give or take uh, a little bit. Which for, you know, the the still somewhat frontier of Mississippi is is fairly large, but um you know, this is this is not the East Coast and even even today, uh, you know, the joke is in Mississippi, it's two largest cities in Mississippi are Memphis and New Orleans. So um <laughs> you know, still not a still not a not a, a very populous place, um at all. And uh Vicksburg, uh it was the it was a major center of culture, obviously, and a major center of trade and transportation. Um, and it was it was one of the larger cities in the state at the time, uh, but nothing obviously compared to New Orleans or Charleston or, or anything like that. Yeah, so, I mean, the scale of, of Civil War events, when you read of people, like the generals all knowing each other from West Point, it's a much smaller world. And, and the town of 3,000, right. all, all those people uh, certainly know each other. So, Grant, uh, you describe it again in the beginning. You you lay out the context, the the campaign, Grant crossing the river, uh, fighting the battles at, at Champions Hill, Big Black River Bridge. He arrives at the outskirts of Vicksburg and hears uh, this enormous. Uh, fortress really the terrain alone is daunting uh, even without the confederate fortifications what makes him think he can just you know walk right in just burst right into the city well for the last 17 days he has run roughshod over the confederate army uh, fought five battles and defeated the enemy in every single one of them and so uh, morale is up uh, his army is, is ready to go they they likewise pretty much think we're just going to, you know, march up there and, and attack and they're going to fold. Uh, but there are several things that he doesn't calculate on. Um, one being his army, uh, and he never really mentions this, nobody really mentions it, but it dawned on me as I was reading letters and diaries that we hear a lot about, you know, Grant turning loose from his, his, his line of supply and communication and, and all that. That's a, uh, we could go a whole other show on, on just that, the, the myths mm-hmm. of it and, and so on. But the reality is, and borne out by just tons and tons of letters and diaries, is that by the time Grant reaches Vicksburg on the 18th uh, and then really starts pushing forward on the 19th of May, um, his guys are getting pretty hungry. They have gotten their last shipment of, of goods, uh, supplies in, probably on the 
at least by the 16th. And so those are starting to run pretty thin, and these guys are starting to get pretty pretty hungry. Um, and I argue in the book that if Pemberton played this a little more, I don't know, wisely. I hate to, I hate to, to Monday morning quarterback, but mm-hmm. I wasn't there, you know. But um, but had he delayed a little bit more, I wonder if 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 this this uh, lack of food uh, and lack of, of energy might have affected you know the campaign again. That's a what if that we don't want to go into, and and we can't draw any conclusions from it, but. Uh, it is becoming a, a factor, and it may have, have influenced the, um, the the assaults there on the 19th uh, just a little bit. The other thing that he doesn't take into consideration uh, in terms of having whipped the Confederate Army or portions of it in five different battles over the last 17 days, uh, three different battles in the last, uh, what's, Five days, six days, Jackson on the 14th and then Champion Hill on the 16th and Big Black River Bridge on the 17th. Um, that portion of the Army is pretty demoralized, and they're, they're pretty done in just for, for now. Uh, but Pemberton has two full, fresh divisions that were guarding Vicksburg and Snyder's Bluff and, and Haynes Bluff and so on. Um, and he wisely puts those fresh, unbeaten troops at the, the center of his line where he knows the assaults are going to be coming. And so Grant's hitting fresh fresh troops that haven't been defeated in, in these debacles that have taken place over the course of the last week or so. And so uh, Grant doesn't really know that this is going to happen, but he, hit, he hits fresh troops that, that are in no way demoralized, and that plays a, a major role in it, of course. And the terrain, I mentioned right at the end of the first segment, the, the hills at Vicksburg are much higher and steeper than the ones in most eastern battlefields, unless you get up into the mountains. Uh, right. And then the defenses are improved. Could talk about the what Pemberton did to prepare for an attack on Vicksburg. Well, Pemberton has been planning for this very crisis for months and months. He was uh, put into his position in October of 1862, uh, knowing that Vicksburg ultimately would become the the, the linchpin of, of you know the defense of the Mississippi Valley, and so he starts stockpiling. Uh, and again, you go back to the official records and read the correspondence and so on. He starts stockpiling goods and supplies and ammunition even that early uh, in Vicksburg. And of course, ultimately, the troops come in as well to to defend it uh, after various you know portions of the campaign up at Grenada and Holly Springs and um, the various bio operations. Chickasaw bio and all that. Um, at the same time, he also has his chief engineer, Samuel Lockett, uh, building fortifications around the city. And these are just part of a much larger concept of, of uh, uh, defenses, a cordon, cordons of defense, if you will. Uh, but this is kind of the last, literally the last ditch. Um, and Lockett spends a good deal of time in the fall of 1862, in uh, September, October, particularly October and November, uh, building these fortifications or laying them out. It takes him forever to, to figure out exactly how we can lay out a, a line of fortifications. And even in some places, it's not perfect, but you got to work with what, what's there, obviously. Mm-hmm. And so he has uh, troops and slaves and whatever he can get uh, digging these fortifications in the fall of 1862, and, uh, of course, they're not needed at that time. They're not needed until the spring, late spring of 1863. 
And, of course, they have eroded somewhat and washed away a little bit uh, in the meantime because they haven't been used. Uh, but they are very quickly brought up to, um, uh, to campaign status and, and uh, refurbished and dug out some more and so on by the troops that, that will inhabit them. And they're, they're quite formidable uh, by May the 19th when Grant launches his first assault. So this, this line of defenses stretches from north of Vicksburg, and, and you know, if, if you're listening, you, you want to have your maps handy. There, there are plenty of good ones uh, available. Vicksburg is on the, the east bank of the Mississippi, and the lines run from north of the town against the river uh, all the way around it further east and then connect back to the river south of the town. So it, it really is a complete circle of defenses, and then you've got the natural terrain. You've got the, these ridges and hills and swamps, and and they're all worked in together. So it it, it is striking that Grant thought he could, you know, break through this uh, and does not succeed, as as you point out on the nineteenth. What are the consequences of that failure? Uh, that the first attack doesn't work. Well, uh, Grant is not um, he's he's not. Uh, you know, overpowered by any means, he's he's not. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? He's he's not giving up, um, and he thinks, okay, let's uh, let's take this um, opportunity that we have. We, we still know that they're demoralized. We're we're still going to going to win this thing quickly, uh, but let's prepare just a little bit a little bit more. Um, the orders on the 19th. It was a it was a hurried up thing. You know, we, we march up to Vicksburg late on the 18th. Get a little closer on the morning of the nineteenth, and hey, let's let's assault and, and see what we can get. Uh, the orders on the nineteenth went out. I believe it, it struck me as as kind of odd. Uh, they're labeled at eleven sixteen in the morning uh, when the orders go out to the army to make this assault on the nineteenth, and the assault is to take place at two o'clock. So that's not <laughs> much lead time, you know, to, to to get prepared. So it's a it's a quick strike. It's a hurry up. Let's let's uh, let's get this thing done. Um, so Grant, after that fails, and really uh, his corps commanders don't really have their heart into it because they're not prepared, obviously, uh, and McClernand and, and uh, McPherson don't really launch any assaults per se, um, Sherman will launch one division, Frank Blair's division will make the attack at the Stockade Renan, uh, and that's, that's pretty much it. Um, so Grant steps back and says, okay, Let's take a couple of days. Let's a get supplies coming. We have we have taken the uh, the Chickasaw Bio area, Haynes Bluff, Snyder's Bluff area on the on the Yazoo River that opens up a line of supply. Let's get food coming in. Let's get food to these hungry soldiers. Um, let's reconnoiter. Let's uh, take a look at things. And let's figure out the best ways to assault, best best uh, places to assault. And so Grant will will take a step back, and he'll consider things, and he'll plan it a whole lot better. Uh, there'll be different types of assaults in terms of tactics, uh, moving by the flank or moving by columns, rather than just you know linear uh, attacks taking taking place like they did on the 19th. And um, and so he'll plan a whole lot better. But obviously, it didn't go any better on the on the 22nd than it did on the 19th. Well, but it, it it's certainly going to be a different 
kind of attack, as you described. We'll come back and talk about the attacks on the 22nd uh, in our third and final segment, talking with Timothy B. Smith, author of The Union Assaults at Vicksburg, Grant Attacks Pemberton, May 17 to 22, 1863. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand, all from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Tim Smith, author of The Union Assaults at Vicksburg, Grant Attacks Pemberton, May 17 to 22, 1863. Tim, before going any further, I wanted to ask you about the maps in the book, which are exceptionally clear and easy to follow. Uh, who did the maps for this book? Well, I appreciate you saying that. Um, uh, often, kid that I've got a wonderful map maker that I've not he's a good artist or anything, but he and I just almost share the same mind almost. Um, and that's because I do my own maps. <laughs> um, I figured out long ago that if I was going to do these books and, you know, you, you have to pay for maps and good military history mm-hmm. books need a lot of maps, obviously. And that is true. Fork out, you know, 150 bucks a map or something that adds up real quick, and you won't get anything out of royalties if you have to pay for you know thousands of dollars for maps. So I thought either I can, you know, have terrible maps and just three or four of them in each book, or I can learn to do it myself. So I just bought Adobe Illustrator and learned to talk myself how to do maps. So I do I do all my own maps now. So I, I don't like a, a mind with my map maker. So. <laughs> well, I, I I was looking through because normally there's a credit, and there are some outstanding map makers. We've all seen the work of people like you know George Skoke and uh, Hal Jesperson and others who do great maps. And, and these and there was no map credit here, so I, I'm very impressed. They're 
They're very clear. They show where each regiment is. And most of all, they have a scale of distance on each map. I was, I was taking a busman's holiday last week, reading a book about the Zulu War of 1879. Uh, wonderful description of Battle of Islandwana. Wonderful maps. And no scale. Like... 300 yards away, but it doesn't show on the map what that is. These maps do show right. that. They're, they're really good. Um, so for this attack on the, on the 22nd, Grant, uh, you mentioned different tactics. Instead of going in the usual two-deep line, they were, they were going to try to go in sort of single file through the Confederate lines. Do I have that right? Yeah. yeah. Um, Grant will issue orders that the attacks are to be made either by the flank or by columns of uh, as, as small as company, um, mm-hmm. if it can be done. And it all depends on the terrain. Uh, if, you know, you have different um, uh, tactical formations for different terrain. And uh, because of the, the few approaches uh, that are available by road, uh, and, and even in between the roads, um, you kind of have this idea of, okay, let's, let's do pinprick assaults rather than just wide assaulting everywhere. And I liken it a little bit to Henry uh, Upton, I believe, at, at Spotsylvania and the mule shoe and, and so on those mm-hmm. uh, supposedly innovative tactics. And, and so where you punch a, a small hole at one place and hopefully that will compromise the entire line rather than just talk, uh, attacking you know, across the board everywhere. Um, and so that was what Grant will, will try, the famous forlorn hope at, uh, at Stock Edward Ann moving down the Graveyard Road, um, the attacks that moved down the Jackson Road, the uh, Baldwin's Ferry Road, uh, and then there are a few attacks in, in between where there's, there's uh, not a road to move on. But uh, what strikes me as ironic and interesting is that most of these pinprick type of assaults that occur by the flank, which is... Um, I guess the best way to, as I understand, to to explain by the flank is if you have a two-row regiment in line uh, facing forward, you know, two ranks deep. If you uh, if you right face everybody, then you have kind of a, a snake-like two-rank uh, marching by twos, if you will, and, and you can move that uh, you can move the regiment a lot easier by just you know, marching the head of it and the, the rest of the snake following uh, a lot easier than you can do the obliques and the turns and all that in, in formation, you know. And so that's kind of the, the idea that we have here. Uh, in other places that this will not work so well with a, maybe a road or something, you will see uh, assaults by uh, companies or even regiments in column um, still trying to do the, the smaller pinpoint attack rather than a wide linear linear attack. What strikes me as interesting and ironic, though, is that once these uh, each of these attacks fails, um, the, the soldiers kind of just return to what they know best, what they've been, you know, the, the, the training kind of kicks in, and they all go back to formations of, you know, the regular line of battle. Mm-hmm. And they, they hit the ravines and look for cover and, and go right back into the the linear formations, you know, and any of the rest of the attacks for the rest of the day are made just like the May the 19th attacks uh, in, in more more linear formations. Unless you bring up, you know, 
fresh troops and so on, which try the, the same way, but they don't work any better than the others. Now, you mentioned uh, Sherman, and, and there are three core commanders that Grant has, Sherman and, and McPherson and, and McClernand, and those are all names a lot of listeners will recognize, certainly. Uh, was the plan for all three corps to attack simultaneously, or was there some coordination expected? Yes, it, it was coordinated. In fact, this is often touted as the first time that uh, an army of three corps, you know, a large army like this, will attack by the clock. Grant had each of his corps commanders set their watches by his watch. Um, and, of course, you know, I run into it all the time. Uh, time varies a lot in Civil War accounts, um, mm-hmm. you know, even off as much by as an hour or more. Um, and that, obviously, we didn't have nuclear clocks and atomic clocks and, and all that kind of stuff then. Uh Cell phones, you know, everybody's cell phones the same now, but right. uh, but everybody kind of had their own then, and they judged it from the sun, and they could be as much as thirty minutes, hour off, or, or so. And so Grant had each of his commanders um, set their their timepieces by his, and it was supposed to take place at ten o'clock on uh, on May the twenty second. And uh, most of the attacks do move off on time, uh, give or take, you know, a few minutes, ten minutes or so here or there. Uh, but they they all do uh, assault some more than others. Um, it's uh, John McClernand that launches the heaviest attacks, and, and he had been he had been the one that had been really needling Grant about we need to do this you know kind of the the pinprick attacks rather than just launching everybody forward. And uh, so Grant kind of moves to that on the twenty second. But then McClernand of all people is the one that just launches his whole his whole corps. Um, kind of across the board, and, and he makes the strongest attack. Uh, Sherman and McPherson uh, just kind of get the idea. They kind of sit back and say, this ain't going to work better than it did three days ago, and I don't want to lose any more men than I have to, so we're just going to kind of make a show and hope, you know, if we break the line, fine. If we don't, we won't lose any more than we have to <laughs> kind of thing. But McClernand goes all out. You quote Ed Bars, who, who we all know is you know, the, the dean of Civil War battlefield guides, uh, uh, much lamented uh, late leader of Civil War battlefield tours. You quote him as saying that, that Sherman's attack, for example, was was pathetic, that, that it was not a yeah. significant attack. And that brings up what you said in the first segment about being a Monday morning quarterback, uh, is that the historian's role to to evaluate these guys, uh, the, their generalship as generals, to to judge how well they did? I gather you're reluctant. Well, to, I'm I'm reluctant to do it. What 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 do you think? I'm I'm a little reluctant. I know historians that that just thrive on this kind of thing. You know that that they love to say what should have been done here and should have been done there and, and so on and always. Uh, kind of keep in the back of my mind that I'm not there and I didn't know all everything that, that they knew. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, I think it is the historian's job to give a broad overview um, using the tools that we have now um, to, to see maybe the larger picture um, mm-hmm. that they could not have seen then, uh, to bring out things that... You know, I've seen studies, you know, that say, well, I want to 
present what they knew at the time kind of kind of thing. And, and so but if you're writing a, a large history that, that uh, shows all facets of this, I think it is important to uh, maybe bring out things that, you know, maybe some commanders didn't know or, or played, you know, a role in, in so on that they didn't realize. Um, and so in that sense, I think it's, it's okay. Maybe not faulting them for, for, for doing something at the time, but to bring out, um, you know, the larger context and the larger issues involved. So in that vein, McLaren launched the largest of the three core size attacks and at some points actually broke into the Confederate line. Uh, had it been promptly reinforced by Army-level resources, by Grant, do you think the attack could have actually succeeded and broken the Confederate line? Well, uh, there again, I mentioned a couple times, that's a what-if that, that we simply don't mm-hmm. know. And I'm, I'm hesitant to fault commanders for what they did, you know, on, on the ground, but I'm even more hesitant to to do any, you know, what if kind of kind of stuff. Um, but in that sense as well, it is important sometimes to offer possibilities, um, mm-hmm. you know, to put in the reader's mind that this uh, was a potential possibility, you know, and, and so on. But um, we're not mind readers. We're not, you know, crystal, we don't have crystal balls. We don't know what would have happened and so on. Um, what we do know happened is that McLernan, he broke through a just very – Small um, breakthrough with the railroad redoubt down on the south end of the of the fighting, um, and he calls for Grant to renew the attacks on Sherman's and McPherson's lines to offer him support and to send him reinforcements. Grant does so and hates the decision for every minute of his life thereafter. Uh, but he sends reinforcements, uh, Isaac Quimby's entire division, southward to the Baldwin's Ferry Road, uh, and McLernan, for some reason, puts those three brigades everywhere except where the pinprick had occurred at the railroad redoubt. Uh, two of those brigades go into uh, the assault at the Second Texas Lunette on the Baldwin's Ferry Road, one of them goes down to support Peter Osterhaus's division, which already had a brigade in, in reserve as well, uh, and none go to the railroad redoubt, which, um, you know, is, leaves you kind of scratching your head a little bit as to why the, you know, the place that the, the success had allegedly occurred, why he didn't put everything in, in right there. And so had he done so, I can't say whether it would have made any major difference or not uh it's hard to hard to tell it would have we've had to play it out you know like uh that's when they say you um, um the baseball field you know so and so should win hands down but that's why you play it out to, that's why we play the games that's that right win, you know so. yeah well the the uh is yeah so mcclarland reinforces failure instead of success when he gets those fresh troops and, and that doesn't exactly, help yeah. much yeah. the uh now the the soldiers themselves are are much less reticent about playing the blame game. They they certainly turn on each other after this oh, battle, yeah. and and uh, uh, that was entertaining reading at least to to find out who uh, uh, McLaren comes out on the short end of that, doesn't he? Absolutely, and in fact loses his clan later in the siege, uh, in large part because of um, his call for reinforcements and. Kind of overblowing. Grant thinks the, the the emphasis on breaking through. Um, 
Grant soon realizes that it was not the breakthrough that McLernan seemed to have uh, indicated. You know, and uh, in fact, when McLernan is relieved on June the 18th, 19th at night, um, Charles Dana, who's with the Army, kind of the, the Army's uh, mole at Grant's headquarters, uh, says this this whole issue of um, not turning in his newspaper column before it's printed in the papers. Uh, it's basically a, a regulation. You know, he says that was the immediate cause, but was not the reason for McLernan's removal. And that goes all the way back to the to the assaults and even before. Wow. We have just 30 seconds left. Quick question. What's the timetable for the next volume of this? Uh, the Siege of Vicksburg book, uh, which will pick up, uh, I've, I've put dates on these. This one was uh, May 17th through 22nd. Uh, the Siege of Vicksburg will pick up on the 23rd and go through, of course, uh, July the 4th. Um, it's a big book. I just finished the copy-edited uh, pages on it. Uh, I think it's 760-something pages. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's a big book. Um, and it'll be out in uh, late spring, early summer, 2021. Wow, right around something, the excellent. Something to look forward to. If you like the detailed battle book, uh, this certainly gives us that. Uh, it's called The Union Assaults at Vicksburg. Grant attacks Pemberton May 17 to 22, 1863, and just whets the appetite for more coming up. Uh, Tim, it's a pleasure as always to talk with you. Thanks for being on Civil War Talk Radio. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed it. And listeners, as always, Thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.